morning. This morning I'll be reading from Exodus chapter 34, verses 1 through 9. You can find these words uh, in the Pew Bible on page 65. The Lord said to Moses, Chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones, and I'll write them on the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready in the morning, and then come up on Mount Sinai. Present yourself to me there on top of the mountain. No one is to come with you or be seen anywhere on the mountain. Not even the flocks and herds may graze in front of the mountain. So Moses chiseled out the two stone tablets like the first ones and went up to Mount Sinai early in the morning as the Lord had commanded him. And he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshiped. Lord, he said, if I have found favor in your eyes, then let the Lord go with us. Although this is a stiff-necked people, forgive our wickedness and our sin and take us as your inheritance. This is the word of the Lord. As you get to know me, you'll understand that there's a tremendous amount of irony in the fact that I would preach a sermon entitled, Hurry Up. I'm a slow-moving individual, and I want to show a slide that will tell you a brief story of speed in me. On the left is a little math worksheet. I don't know if any of you have ever done this when you were in school, but they called it a mad math minute. And I remember in fourth grade being in Miss Alexander's class and my best friend Zach Williams would be sitting right beside me and we loved the mad math minute. They would give you this with all these multiplication tables or whatever on it and the teacher would say, go. And you had 60 seconds to try to finish the sheet. And we would always, we were, we were trying to race and see who would be the first to put down their pencil and make it clear that, hey, I, I won this thing. Uh, that was probably the last time that I did something that well, that quickly, and found any kind of joy in it. On the right-hand side of the image there is uh, Williamson and Company CPAs. This was kind of the first uh, job that I had in high school and early release. My senior year, we would get out at lunch, and I would go work at the CPA office and ended up working with them a few years in college as well. But I'll never forget uh, the moment that I realized I was in the right place was when Earl Williamson, one of the partners, came in one of my first few days there, and he sat down this large stack of papers, and it was a town audit. And he said, this is a town audit. And he said, I want you to retype this and make certain that there are no mistakes in the math and make certain that there are no grammatical errors. And I thought, okay, I can do that. And he said, and it doesn't matter how long it takes you. And it was just like a song to my soul that there was no, it didn't matter. All that matters, it was done well. He was not putting a time limit on me. Hurry up is a phrase that we use uh, probably often in life. I find myself probably overusing it, uh, especially with Anna Carson as she's going down the stairs or something like that and decides to just stop and sit on one, you know. 
And I say, hurry up, sweetheart. Come on, come on. We gotta go. Daddy's trying to get out the door. And you know, and she'll go two more steps and then be urged to take a seat and experience that step and see what it feels like. <laughs> and there is a tension in our lives between fast and slow, between hurry up and pause. And I think this is kind of the symphony of life's rhythm. There are beauty in both the pauses and in the speed. Normally what we hear in church talk, in Christian life, is, you know, slow down, reflect, stop, be still and know that I am the Lord, Psalm 46.10, great verse. And certainly there's tremendous value, we can't argue with that at all, that we must be still in the presence of God. That there is great value in, in silence, in solitude, in waiting, in resting. But there's also a time to, to go, a time to move, a time to move even with urgency. We know that God has given us the Sabbath, but if we remember how that day came to be, it was after six days of work. Then we were given a day in which to rest and to reflect and worship. Uh, last week, we had a, a prayer insert in the bulletin from the Valley of Vision. We have that book of prayers on order for the library. I hope you'll take time, if you don't own a copy, to check out that copy. It's a book of Puritan prayers, wonderful, wonderful prayers. The idea for this sermon actually came from one of those prayers. I just want to read you the sentence that really struck me a few weeks ago. The writer of the prayer says, All the nations are nothing before thee. One generation succeeds another, and we hasten back. To the dust. And I thought, wow, is that, is that what we're hurrying to? Is that what all this hustle and bustle uh, and stress is about, that we're just trying to get to the end of things? So the questions that I ask this morning are, why are we hurrying? For whom are we hurrying, and to what do we hurry? The context for the passage this morning is the second giving of the Ten Commandments. As you recall, Moses broke the first set of stone tablets when he descended from the mountain and found God's people who had hurried to worship, all right, but the worship of a golden calf, not the one true living God. And we can probably connect with this idea that sometimes we need a redo, a do-over, a mulligan, whether it's in our relationships, in finances, professionally, or maybe the road that we thought we would take in college, or, or whatever. Sometimes we come to a place to where we realize, okay, that didn't work. Let's try again. And so Moses here finds himself coming before God to receive again the set of Ten Commandments. I want to particularly look at verse 8. Exodus 34, 8 and I want to read you from the King James Version because it phrases it a little bit differently. It says, Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. Most of the other translations just kind of run it all together. Moses quickly prayed. But I like the emphasis on the making haste, bowing down and worshipping. We talk about Moses this morning because uh, Jim will be embarking on a series on Moses. For the next several weeks, he'll be talking about this great Old Testament character. And I would posit that one of the main, if not the main, aspect of Moses' spirituality 
the key to his leadership was that he hurried to God in prayer and in worship, and he did so often. What precipitated Moses hurrying to his knees? Why did he hurry, hasten, and bow down and pray? If we look at verses 5 and 6, they tell us how great God is. God, uh, says the Lord over and over in this passage, the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to the thousands. God is awesome and that should drive us quickly to prayer. But the second part, which creates the urgency, I think, is if we go on with verse 7, it says that he forgives wickedness, rebellion, and sin, Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. So God is awesome, and we are not so much. And we should hasten to prayer in light of that truth. There are four major components uh, to Moses' prayer, and I think there's a place in the bulletin if you want to write these down in the notes section, uh, you can do so. But there's four, four things that I want us to glean from Moses' prayer here. Why, what did he hurry to pray? First is this, he says, if I have found favor in your sight. Moses hastened, he bowed, and he prayed, if I have found favor in your sight. Now this is Moses. Moses, the one who was supposed to be killed by the midwives before he ever saw the light of day. Moses, the one drawn out of the water, the one rescued and adopted by the Egyptian family, the one who grew up murdered the Egyptian, fled into the wilderness, the flaming bush, the call to go back to Egypt, the one who stood toe-to-toe with the most powerful man in the world and said, let God's people go. The one who spoke plagues and they happened. The one who parted the sea with his staff. If I have found favor in your sight. We don't like this prayer. I don't like this prayer. It's conditional. We don't, like, we don't want to start a prayer with if, and certainly not when it's followed by the word I. We want God's mercy, we want his blessing, we want his goodness, unconditional love. Well, it is unconditional love, but Moses recognized that if he was outside of God's favor, then perhaps he would be praying something that wasn't even in accordance or agreement with God's will. So if I have found favor in your sight, he says, go in the midst of us. Go in the midst of us. Quickly he moves from I, me, and my to we, us, our. Go in the midst of us. This was a people on the move, and they wanted to make sure that they were people on the move with a God who's on the move, not one who had settled down yet in a tabernacle or a temple, but one who was going with them, one who was leading them by cloud, by day, and fire by night. Go in the midst of us. It's a prayer of intercession. It isn't go in the midst of me. He lifts up these people. Imagine if we had a transcript of all the prayers that we had ever prayed. Every word that's ever come out of our mouths to God. And if we were to go back over there and comb through that and highlight certain words, what would it reveal about our theology or our me-ology? Would there be lots of I and me and mine, or would there be more of us and we and our? 
go in the midst of us. It's a prayer for the community. The third thing he says is, God, pardon our wickedness and our sin. Pardon our wickedness and our sin. Remember, he is awesome and we are not. So to come before him, we come pleading for his his mercy. We confess our sin. These were a broken people. These were a people who were rescued out of Egypt, out of bondage, and yet as soon as they got in the desert, they began to fuss and complain and whine and wonder if they would have been better. Cross the water, back in captivity. Moses, what did you do? Lead us out here to starve to death in the desert? This is terrible. And they complained and they were bitter. Pardon our wickedness and our sin. And the last thing Moses says is take us as your inheritance. Take us as your inheritance. Adopt us, God. We don't have any right standing before you, but take us anyway. Hold us. Give us our identity. We learn from this passage that we must hurry to prayer or we'll hurry elsewhere. We're going to be in a hurry, so either we hurry to prayer or we'll hurry to the flesh. The flesh runs to self-gratification. There's a slide, a picture of a well-known story in Scripture that you'll recognize, the prodigal son. It's not one of the classic paintings associated with that uh, story that Jesus told, but the reason that I chose this particular image is because you see the stark contrast between one fellow who's moving very slowly and one who's moving very quickly. But contrast that with this. We don't know exactly how long it had been, but when that son was going the other way down that driveway, I just imagined that he had a spring in his step. I mean that he was going. He had cashed in the inheritance, and he was running away from the rules and the accountability and the oversight and all that stuff that goes on at home. And he was going. He was going to go live a, 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 a great time. Have a lot of fun. Be set loose and set free. And it didn't take him too terribly long for all that to run its course. And now he has come back home. And he comes slowly. He comes humbly with trepidation, shuffling back up that driveway. And he thinks he's returning as a slave and not as a son. Of course, we know the story that the father in this story represents God, and he, he is not slow to come to his son, but he comes quickly to his son. He races to embrace him. He comes not to entertain the apology or to cast stones, but to reclaim what was lost. In fact, what he said was dead. To welcome this wonder, to wrap his arms around his boy and celebrate. We can identify perhaps with this son, this prodigal son who hurried off into sin. I think half of, of Satan's strategy in tempting us is for us to hurry and sin. If we pause, we begin to think. We begin to think of consequences and how what we're uh, about to do could hurt those whom we love. If we pause, we're more likely to pray. We're more likely to seek God's counsel in His Word or from our family of faith. 
No, the flesh says, hurry into sin. Hurry to please yourself. Focus on self. Forget God. Don't worry about the consequences. Sin says, do this now, and later you can run to God. But we all know that once you commit the sin, we don't feel like running to God. We feel guilty and ashamed. We feel alienated and we're slower to God than we would have been if we had come to Him for help. Or consider this story, the parable of the Good Samaritan. If you haven't read this story lately, I would encourage you to go back and read it this week in Luke chapter 10. We know the story, but what I want you to hear in the story is the contrast, the hurriedness, and then the pace slows down incredibly. We start off with this man who's walking down the road and he's attacked, right? And we know something about those who would uh, attack or would rob. They don't move slowly, right? They don't, they don't sit down and engage in dialogue. They hide somewhere and then spring out and do what they're going to do quickly and then run away before they can be caught. So that is what has happened. And then this man is lying here on the road, half naked, left for dead, and robbed. And we hear that two people come by, a priest and then a Levite. I think they went by hurriedly. It says that they passed by on the other side of the road, and I can just see them in my mind kind of quick-stepping it, going, oh, I don't want to get involved. I don't have time for that. I've got important things to do. But then when you get to verse 33, it's like the brakes are pumped, and it says, but a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds. This takes time. Pouring on oil and wine, he put the man on his donkey. This takes time. He took him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper and said, look after him and I'll be back and if I need to pay you more, I will. The rhythm of hurriedness. These men who were in a hurry to do whatever they were going to do went right by where they needed to stop, where they needed to show mercy and compassion. There are many great biblical examples of hurry up. In fact, we don't have to look any farther than the three stained glass windows that are in this worship space to find this fluctuation of tempo in the scripture. We look over here on my right and your left. Oh, isn't it such a serene and still and quiet moment? It looks so peaceful, doesn't it? But we know Uh, Those of us who have been involved in a situation where a woman is in labor, you don't just, well, let's stop off and pick up some groceries and, you know, just when we get to the hospital, we'll get to the hospital. They were trying to find a place and having difficulty in doing so for her to have this baby. It was not a silent night, not, not at that point. It was a hurried night. And then we see the little shepherd bowing down on the left there. We remember the scene where the the heavens open up and the angels tell this, this story, this news to these shepherds that this baby had been born. And the text tells us that the shepherds hurried to find the place where he was. If we look back here in the center, we see these two men, Jesus being baptized by John. And it looks so still and serene, doesn't it? But remember the conversation between these two men. Jesus said, you are to baptize me. And John is resistant. He says, I, I'm not worthy to do that. I, you should baptize me. I can't baptize you. And Jesus 
is kind of terse with him and says, this is, this is what is right. Now do it. You can almost sense him saying, hurry up, let's do this. This is what is good and right. And then we see the, the, the graceful image of the dove descending, the Holy Spirit. Not a hurried thing, for certain. Uh, we, it would have been called a flash of lightning if it had been hurried, but it was slow and gracious and beautiful. But then right after that, if we remember the story, it says Jesus laid down and took a nap. No, he didn't. The Spirit, it says, immediately came and drove him into the wilderness where he, was, uh, where he fasted and prayed and was tempted by the devil. And then over here on the, your far right is maybe the, the best illustration of this. We see these six children gathered at the foot of Jesus. Now, unless someone gave them Benadryl or something like that, this was not a calm scene. We know that children naturally bring energy. They're loud, they're boisterous, they're bouncing around. And as parents and grandparents, we always have to kind of, okay, now there's a time for that, and there's a time for sit still and be quiet, wait, hold on, hold on, don't interrupt. Children have to learn that. That's not, that's not natural most of the time. So we can see these children running around and, and, and being wild, and that's probably part of the reason that the disciples said, just, just go away, back, up, back off. The master has important business, and you're being loud and unspiritual and all that. And we remember that Jesus rebuked them and said, let them come to me. Bring that energy to me. Don't bring it elsewhere. Bring it to me. Let them sit on my lap. That's just a quick picture, right? We know probably right after that was taken, those kids are bouncing and they're jumping and they're back off over the hill. There's this tension, this fluctuation, this rhythm of, of hurry up and slow down and be still. We remember David and Goliath. David didn't come into that valley with fear and trepidation. It says he ran into battle with Goliath. He ran into it. We think about Joseph uh, being sexually tempted by Potiphar's wife. He did not say to her, well, let's sit down over a cup of coffee and, and consider what you're proposing and see if this makes sense or not. No, it says he got out of there. He ran right out of his robe and left the house. There's a time to move quickly. And this is really a law of, of, of life that we can try to separate ourselves from. But Scripture tells us over and over, life is quick. It's short. Even if you live to be 90 or 100, those people will tell you it just seems like it went by so quickly. It just, it just was like that. Uh, we, we, we're told that life is fleeting. It springs up like a flower. The wind blows and it's gone and its place knows it no more. I want to share a quote with you from C.S. Lewis about the strangeness of time. He says, this is an argument for us to consider that, that uh, we are built for eternity. He says, we are so little reconciled to time that we're astonished by it. How he's grown, we exclaim. How time flies as though the universal form of our experience were again and again a novelty. It is as strange as if a fish were repeatedly surprised at the wetness of water. Unless indeed there is something in us which is not temporal. Why are we continuously shocked by kids going from here to here so quickly? How are we shocked that it's been, it's been 15 years since that tragic day? And, and every one of us is going, wow, it doesn't seem like 15 years. It, it feels more like five. Nobody says, oh, that feels like that was 50 years ago. 
We're surprised by how quickly time goes by. I want to introduce you to a gentleman uh, by the name of Horace Ward. He went to be with the Lord uh, recently. I met this man eight years ago. I had just finished swimming laps at the Y, and I was going down into the jacuzzi, and this innocent enough looking older gentleman was sitting in there, and I'm sure I said something like, good morning, sir, how are you? And I had no idea where that greeting would take me. This man was an absolute warrior in the kingdom of God. He was a lion of a man. When he was a little boy, his father was incarcerated. He read the Bible from cover to cover when he was 10 years old to try to make his daddy happy with him. He began going to the prisons to see his daddy when he was 10, and he began conversing with other prisoners. He would write them notes, he would encourage them, and he did that same thing until he died at the age of 85. 75 years, Horace Ward went into the prisons and the jails and shared with men about the love of Jesus. Well, what was interesting about this man is for for all the good that was around his life, he had this dream of this place for a transitional housing for men when they were discharged from prison to kind of help them uh, not just rush back into their old life, but to have a, a, a place that was structured, that would help them get on their feet, maybe get some job skills and find a job and, and be able to stand on their own one day. And this man, he talked to me about this dream. He talked to me about this vision. He went to church after church after church after church. He prayed and he prayed and he prayed. He got up at four every morning and prayed. And we looked and we said, how is this thing not happening? Surely it's the will of God. I mean, it's caring for the least of these. Why isn't it coming to fruition? Well, he had met one man in prison by the name of Chris. Chris and I have become friends. Uh, He was incarcerated for some time. But Chris, this past January, when he was incarcerated in North Carolina, during his prayer time, he felt that God said to him, This year, this was after Horace had passed, this year the transitional house will open and you will be the one to open it. And Chris shared with me that he said, well, Lord, that's great, but um, I'm in prison. So I got off the phone with Chris last week and he he has the house, he has seven acres of land. This Wednesday he will receive his first inmate to come to Restoration Place. And I look at that story and I go, that man prayed up a mountain worth of prayers. I don't know that Chris ever has the call, ever has the vision, ever has the desire, ever even thinks about doing transitional house, except that Horace Ward prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and struggled for it. And the question for us is, are we willing to engage in the the work of the kingdom like that where it goes beyond us? So often my prayers are about me, me, me and what I can do, but am I willing to to pour the foundation so that the next person can come along and build on it? What great selflessness. And I remember the verse from James 5, 16, the fervent prayers of the righteous availeth much. In wrapping up this morning, uh, I, I wanted to mention that in all this hurrying up, there is a bit of a, an apocalyptic tone Uh, To this, I've heard comments from numerous folks uh, for whom the current political situation has fostered within them an apocalyptic yearning. Lord, please come back. Hasten to return before November 8th. 
They're just certain that an in-depth study of Revelation would uncover some great significance in the Numbers 11, 8, 16. Well, the last words of Scripture that we have in the book of Revelation say this. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I'm coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus Be with all. Amen. The CEV says it like this. So Lord Jesus, please come soon. And the message translation of the Bible answers, I'm on my way. I'll be there soon. Matthew 6, 33. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. I challenge us this morning to consider seeking fast the kingdom of God. And his righteousness. That which we seek fast, we usually place first priority on. We're slow to do the things that we really don't want to do, the things that will cause us pain. We hurry to that which is important and pleasurable. May we stop waiting on the right time and the right circumstance to open our hearts completely to God and do the right thing and do it quickly. Hurry up, hurry to confession. Hurry to celebrate Christ. Hurry to worship and to the Word. Hurry to Sabbath rest. Hurry to help and to honor. Hurry to serve selflessly. Hurry to love God and neighbor. Let us hurry to the Holy One. The last thing in in the notes section in the bulletin says, What has God led me to do that I have delayed to obey? So in a moment, we'll have a song, and when we are... Pastor Jim, at least since I've been here, always says if you have never accepted Christ as your Lord, feel free to come forward and and I can pray with you about that. Or if you would like to join Brookwood or you're interested in that, we can talk about that. But the invitation this morning is for everyone, and that is for us to ask ourselves this question. What is it that the Spirit of God has been speaking to us that we have been slow to respond for whatever reason? Consider that and pray with me. Father, make us slow to hate, and slow to judge, slow to delay, and to procrastinate in eternal matters. Make us slow to consider ourselves before others, slow to anger, slow to appease the urgent cries of our flesh. Hurry, O God, and help us. May we find favor in your sight. Be with us, Lord. Forgive our sin and wickedness. Take us as your inheritance. We pray in the name of your Son, Jesus, who always hurried to righteousness. Amen.